0: You're listening to Church Unplugged, the podcast of Christ Community Chapel. In each episode, we look at questions and topics that are related to our faith in Jesus and the way that it plays out in our everyday lives. In this episode, we're talking about the relationship between women and Christianity. There are a number of factors that complicate this relationship, whether it is the role of women in ministry, passages about submission in marriage, or even purity culture. All of these have led to a complicated relationship between women and Christianity, but it's a very important discussion for us to have as followers of Jesus. Welcome in to Church Unplugged. Welcome into Church Unplugged. I'm Jimmy Cozy, part of the leadership team here at CCC. I've got with me today Joe Coffee, our lead pastor, Zach Wyrock, and Stacy DeNardo, both other members of our leadership team. Our topic today is women and Christianity. So. Uh, there's been a complicated, at times, relationship between women and Christianity, whether it is related to things that are said about women in Scripture, about what they can and can't do in ministry. Churches have various stances. There are spectrums of belief on that. Uh, gender roles within marriage and other relationships, and then even uh, things like purity culture, which is something we can explain a little bit more clearly when, it, when we get to it. So uh, let's start with the idea of women in ministry, because... Uh, from a theological perspective, there are really two camps of belief, and there's really a spectrum in between them. Egalitarianism, which is—you uh, guys can cor- correct me when I'm when I make yeah. mistakes—but uh, the belief that. Any role within ministry is open to anybody of any gender, and then at the other end of the spectrum is what's called complementarianism, which would be the belief that there are certain roles, or even any pastoral roles, that are restricted only to men that women can't fulfill. So uh, let's start with that category, and you guys can jump in.
1: Yeah, I think a good starting point for this is understanding that when the Bible talks about gender, its starting point is not gender itself. I think this is a really important... Uh, idea, because if it were gender itself, then you'd have to begin your argument with the Bible uh, makes clear that there's something about men and women that are different in terms of superior superiority and inferiority, and then as a result they play different roles because one is superior and the other is inferior. But instead, the Bible roots gender in the triunity of God, So in the very beginning of chapter 1 of Genesis, you have God saying, let us make man in our image, right? You have plural language, which we will later, as the story unfolds, realize is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And when God makes man in His image, Genesis 1 says He makes them male and female. It's the only time that the gender of a creation is, is made notice of. So in the animals, it'll just say, you know, he made them and said, be fruitful and multiply. But here he says, nope, he made a male and female, and in their maleness and their femaleness together, they image a God who is three and yet one. Gender is explicitly linked in the Bible to the nature and identity of God. And the reason why that's so fundamental is because in the Godhead itself, what you have is equality, father equal with son and spirit, spirit equal with son and father, and so on, around and around you go. But you have equality of value but distinction of function, so that it is God the Father who decrees the eternal plan, it is God the Son who accomplishes the eternal plan, it is God the Spirit who works that plan out in the lives of of the Church. And so when when it says, for example, in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that isn't a statement about the superiority of the Son over and against the Spirit. It's about the role that Jesus plays. So when you understand that, then and only then can I think you make sense of the Bible's teaching on gender, that it's not a question of superiority or inferiority. It's a question of imaging a God who is three and yet one, equal and yet separate in in function.
2: What do you think uh, is the reason then that... Uh, that there is such a, a, a grasping and a dissatisfaction with different roles and gender and all of that? Do you think that is founded in uh, the sinful nature? Do you think it's part of the culture that we are in right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah. it is fierce. Yeah, you know? no, I
1: think right. I would locate that frustration uh, in, in in three main sources— uh, one source would be culture, right? Which which is culture is much more about self-actualization. So it's saying the the kind of the chief sin of our culture is saying to anyone, you can't be what you want to be. You can't do what you want to do because we view self-actualization as just the highest uh, end goal. So that's part of it. I think some of it is a misunderstanding of God and a misunderstanding of what's going on in the Bible, that things are being restricted just to be restricted, or that the Bible is somehow driving home this superiority or inferiority idea. And the third thing I think is just really bad job of teaching and communication, communication by pastors, particularly by men in the church, who have taken a biblical truth, which I think is that men and women are different, uh, equal in, 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 in essence, but different in function, and they have used that like a weapon to bludgeon uh, women. And as a result, there's been pushback less against the actual idea and more against the execution of the idea. And, and, I, and I think it exists on all three of those levels.
2: Stacey, what's been your experience as a Christian woman growing up in the church? And then how do you how did you view it? How do you view it now?
3: Yeah, absolutely. No, um, I think I, I love what you said, Zach, about just role and function, because I do think growing up in the church, um, you do see just men honestly dominating church leadership, and some of that, again, is so appropriate and is the way that it is supposed to be. And then there are other times that I think it has been abused or there have been things that have assumed in roles that women can volunteer and are serve in that are not scripturally based. Um, as far as my own experience, I think it's one where— um, I've been fortunate to be able to, to obviously move in lots of ways to operate in gifts and strengths that God has given me to serve in the church, to work in the church. While at the same time, um, obviously, there's a lot of questioning, I think, as a female that you do in going, is this a role that, um, and mainly that probably does come from the culture and from the church culture of going and questioning and saying, is that really something that a woman should be doing or should not be doing? And so there's a, it almost can ta- at times really squelch, I think, women from fully operating in their gifts, fully operating in their strengths, and complementing the church and the way that we are supposed to complement the church because we do bring things to the table that, again, is part as image bearers of God and in complementing what men bring to the table. So there's definitely a tension of, on one hand, I'm so grateful to be sitting at this table and to be um, empowered to operate and work in the strengths and gifts God's given me. And at the same time, it's not always been easy because there's been questioning. Um, I had one experience um, that I had a number of years ago in ministry at a different um, at, in a different church where I had a pastor that I worked directly with say to me, I just wish you were a man because then you could be a pastor. And at that point and where I was in my own even maturity and growth, it really did mess with me because I'm going, well, I have. you're telling me I have all of these qualities and yet I can't function in that. And again, I do believe very much that the, the leadership of a church should be that, that male leadership and in the household and all of that, but there are ways that um, men can definitely handle that. Better and how we lead in churches. So
1: yeah, really sorry you had that experience. That's <clears throat> not good. Uh, I think this is why rooting it in the triunity of God is so important because it preserves us from falling off one side of the cliff or the other. On the one hand, it says uh, men and women are equal in value. That just as you couldn't say, "Give me God, but leave off the Spirit. Give me God, but leave off the Son." give me God, but leave off the Father, you couldn't say, give me the Church, but leave out women. Like, it's that It's that simple. You you couldn't do it. It's that rooted in, in, in the value. Uh, but just as the Father does not do what the Son does, and the Son does not do what the Spirit does, we all have a part to play. And, you know, when I was planting in Cleveland, this was the single issue that we would lose people over, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, but... By far doubled up the nearest issue. And I always thought about it this way. I use this example that I think, I hope is helpful. Uh, I think people found it helpful. There's a documentary, there was a doc- documentary on Netflix for a while, it's called Bat Kid. And it was the story of this kid, six-year-old boy in San Francisco who had cancer, and his make-a-wish was to be Batman for the day. And so the whole city of San Francisco jumped in, and they just did this incredible, elaborate thing where he got to be Batman for a day. The police participated. Actors were, were hired to be Batman villains that this little boy could capture. A really cool story. Uh, and I would ask people, if you showed up with a friend that morning to volunteer, to do whatever it, it took to make Bat-Kid feel like Batman for a day because he's a kid dying of cancer. And they looked at your friend and said, you know what, you would make a really good Joker. So would you mind being in front of all these people? Would you mind doing this? And, and, and your friend was like, that'd be great. And then they looked at you and said, uh, yeah, we need, this is going to be a mess. So we need people like you afterwards to come by and just sweep up the garbage in the streets. Uh, would you throw down your broom and say, well, if I can't be Joker, I don't want to do this at all. No, because you would understand, you showed up that day because of Bat Kid. You showed up today because he mattered. In the same way, in the Church, what matters is that Jesus is made much of, and we all play the role that we are given that will make much of Jesus. And so I do believe men and women have different roles, but I also believe those roles are so indispensable to a healthy Church that just as we could not give up a member of the Godhead, we cannot give up one gender or the other in the accomplishment uh, of our mission, and I wish more men who had conversations like the one Stacy had w- would would be appreciative of the vital things that women bring, like what Stacy brings to this church, uh, and, and rather than making the point about what can and can't happen, truly valuing what is happening uh, because of the unique role that they play.
2: For those of you who are listening, I think you've probably picked up that our church uh, is complementarian as opposed to egalitarian in the way that Jimmy described it. Um, but one of the ways that I, I have always thought of the way that complementarianism should be worked out, not just in the church but also at home, is that I feel like uh, my job is to uh, to protect my wife, to take the shots that somebody—if somebody wants to go after my wife, I want to say to them, no, you, you come—I mean, I will step in front of her and say— I will absorb whatever you want to to go after my wife for because that's what I want to do out of love for her. Um, if uh, as we look at complementarianism, one of the things that uh, that Jesus also puts on its head is what it means to be uh, the head of the church. Right, it's supposed to be a servant, somebody who is willing to say, "I will absorb the shots," not just the one that says, "I will absorb." The adoration and other people take the shots, you know. So I think people misunderstand kind of what uh, the whole role is supposed to be.
1: Yeah, and I, I and I also think I think that's true. I also think that people misunderstand what is restricted in the Bible. So as I read the New Testament, uh, what it appears to me is that what is restricted is the office of a pastor only. Paul restricts that in First Timothy uh, uh, and in Corinthians. Um, you know, I think there are other arguments to be made. I think that office is clearly restricted. Now, to get around that, I think you're going to have to say, we can't trust Paul, or Paul's words were conditioned on his time, and I think that just that introduces a whole kind of hermeneutical set of problems that we if we apply universally to the New Testament, we really end up not being able to trust the New Testament. So, uh, leaving those aside, if I say that the office of a pastor is restricted, then here's really what I'm saying a couple of things that are I think are super important. And if you're particularly if you're a young woman in the church wrestling through your value, I hope you hear these. These are really important. Number 1 that what we're really saying is that The key distinction in the New Testament is not male or female. It's pastor or not a pastor. And that anything that's restricted from someone who's not a pastor is as restricted for a man in the church as it is for a woman in the church. Because the key dividing line is not whether you're a man or a woman. woman, It's whether you're a pastor. So if a man has not been tasked by a church to be a pastor, he's just as restricted. So whatever we would restrict from a woman, we must also restrict from a non-pastor man that's number one number two then which wait let's stop there because that is huge because there's so many and not
2: and not consistently (coughs) applied. correct i I don't understand the so many things in our in our church and in churches like ours uh have traditionally been been the role of a man but not biblically the role of a man which is a
1: huge difference so let me make this application if if someone were to say so stacy at our church you do the hosting sometimes right in our services and i I'm on record as saying I think you're the best host that we have. So if you get on stage and and you do the hosting and someone says she shouldn't be doing that, Then they should say the same exact thing if a man who's not a pastor at our church gets up and does that. Because the only thing, that's right. Because the only thing the New Testament has in mind is that these things are restricted for pastors. And if that man's not a pastor, it doesn't matter whether he was born male. What matters is he's not a pastor, and you should be equally as offended as when he's on stage. So if that's going to be your viewpoint, then you need to say, every time we put a man on stage, I better send somebody an email and ask if he was ordained. Because if he wasn't, then I need to be offended because I think this church has gotten it wrong. So because, again, the distinction is pastor and not a pastor, not male or female. And the reason why it's so important to hear, if, particularly if you're a woman listening to this, is because it's not about your value. It's right. not about your identity. It's not about inferiority. It's about God having set aside certain people to play a, a role in the Church. And that if your husband's not a pastor, he's just as restricted by God in this way as you are. The restriction is that neither of you are pastors. That's an important point. Here's the second point, so that if the question becomes the dividing line of anything in the Church is, does someone, in a New Testament sense, have to be a pastor to do this? And if the answer is yes, then you have to restrict it to only pastors, not only men, but only men who have been ordained to be pastors. And if the answer is no— then that applies to all women should be able to do that thing. So whatever the thing is. So if someone says to me, I don't think we ought to have a woman doing that, I will say to them, well, really, why? Where in the New Testament do you think it's saying only pastors can do that? And if you can't show me that, then what you're giving me is a personal, visceral, cultural preference. And, you know, the Church belongs to Jesus, not to your cultural, visceral, personal preference.
0: Let's uh shift gears here. He mentioned uh marriage and all three of us, Joe, Zach, and I have done wedding ceremonies. Stacy, you've participated in at least one because you're married. Yeah. Uh, but one of the you <laughs> know, one. common wedding scriptures that's used is Ephesians 5, where it says, Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her for her. And then it says, wives submit to your husbands, which yeah. I know can be one of the most difficult verses for people to interpret, for people to understand. Uh, so that concept of submission in marriage, how do you see all of, see that fitting into this yeah. discussion?
1: Let, let me make one textual point that's important before uh, we get into what it looks like in marriage, and that is that in the original language, the first sentence of that passage is actually Ephesians 5.21, which is, submit yourselves one to, one to another, another right? Yeah. right. Yeah, so 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 the key is in the Greek, and this is where English sometimes is not helpful, because a lot of English translations make that the last sentence of the preceding passage. So Paul begins that whole dialogue, because he's not just going to deal with, in that section, wives and husbands. He's going to get into children and, and parents and, and slaves right? and yes. masters, yeah. and, right? And he says, look, here's the real idea, because we all have one... Savior, one Lord, and we all submit to Him, we ought to be submitting to each other, right? Here's how you work that out, husbands and wives, this is what that means for you. So to say that however we understand wives submitting to their husbands, and we should, it has to be understood under the banner of that, that all of us will at one time or another submit to each other.
0: Yeah, I actually I taught that passage a while back, and one of the things that I read that was really helpful for me was that uh, that section in and of itself, where the it talks about wives and husbands, children and parents, and then slaves and masters, has to be all taken together. And it actually mimicked a household code that they would have in that time period, where every household would have stipulations. This is how the husband and wife interact. This is how the children and the parents interact. This is how the people who work in the house, the slaves, for lack of a better word, and the masters interact. And so uh, to cherry-pick one piece out of that would maybe miss the greater meaning, meaning that is present there.
3: But even even so, when we just think about it, the baseline of it, there's that word submit that we get so hung up on, and we've just explained lots of reasons why we shouldn't. But the other side of that is it's telling men that they have to die for their wife. They right. have to lay their life down, and like that is— so much more of a sacrifice than saying submit. So I think there's that getting so hung up on that is something that women shouldn't do and really be- think about it in the full context. But
2: And in that time frame, that was a much more radical thing to say to husbands than to wives, because back in the first century of the Middle East, then it was normal for a wife to be actually subservient to her husband. Uh, but a man was never commanded to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. But for me, the way um, you know, I explained it in my wedding ceremonies is uh, if I task the man to, uh, to, with an umbrella when it's raining and I say, your job is to keep your wife dry, um, and I tell her, well, it wouldn't make sense when you go outside to try to struggle to see who's going to hold the umbrella if he is doing what God wants him to do. Then what makes sense is to come underneath yeah. that umbrella and allow him to love you. Uh, when I'm talking to my son-in-laws, I ma'am, mean, I will tell them, boy, the only time you know the, the, the way this is abused is when a man says you're supposed to submit to me and do what I want you to that do. She right. disagrees right. with, yeah. And uh, you know what I tell my son-in-laws is to say the only time you ever pull that trump card is when you feel like you can love her better than she's loving herself. For my uh, my son-in-law who's my daughter who's training for uh, an Ironman, actually both of them are, but the one goes overboard. And I said, if you ever need to sit down with her and say, I'm going to, we're going to take a day off for you, for you, not because I miss you, not because I, I think that you're spending too much time at the gym, but because I think it's best for you, then you can call her to yourself because of love. But yeah, I think that, people misunderstand that and abuse that in a real relationship and the way that works yeah. it is amazing i think
1: well and part of the reason for that is because in a in a biblical marriage the wife should always see that her husband is leading her and i think at times when the wife is leading the husband based on that mutual submission idea that the leadership is is coming from jesus right that all they really want for you is the balance Jesus wants for you, the rest Jesus wants for you, the righteousness Jesus wants for you, so that it never becomes about what I want versus what you want, but it's always saying, this is what Jesus wants, and I'm happy to kind of stand in the gap and let you know. And, and again, I just think that mutual submission is important, because in my marriage, this has gone both directions. I mean, there's so many things that are true of me now that are true of me because Amy taught me them. Because Amy would stand in the gap for me and encourage me to grow in certain ways and vice versa. And when, I'm, when I push back against that, it's never because of gender roles or workflow or organizational chart of our marriage. It's always because my heart is full of sin. Yeah. And when I appreciate it, it's never because of workflows or org charts. Or It's always because I want what Jesus wants and that's what she's telling me and that's what she's giving me. And I think that, that's the important point.
3: Is there anything in this that plays out with, as far as with men's and women's roles just in their home and in the family with um, just different actual functions within the household? So, for instance, I can just share, my husband is a much better cook than I am. And so that's just something where we go like, well, he is a much better cook, and so he does that more often. But I think there's times um, that, again, those actual specific roles within the household, does that apply to leadership authority I don't you know, know. It's, it's
0: interesting because uh, my wife and I have talked about this kind of thing at, at times as about well. About Stacey and her husband. About Stacey. Yeah, With yeah. Gene's <laughs> yeah, cooking. Yeah. We talk about Gene's cooking almost every day. It's <laughs> pretty, yeah, no, and just uh, one of the things that I've kind of said in those conversations um, is that I feel like, uh, as far as you know, for example, uh, caring for my wife spiritually, um, my job is to ensure that she is walking closer and closer to Jesus. Yeah. That doesn't mean, as a pastor, I come home from work and I say, "All right, I'm going to get my Bible out. It's time for you to learn." You know, that's not that's not what that how that function plays out. But I do think that God has tasked me with spiritual leadership in our house in the sense that uh, both for my wife and now all four of my children, my role is to ensure that I'm fostering an environment where they're able to walk closer and closer to Jesus, and I'm not doing anything that stands in the way. Of that. And I think the same principle applies to things, obviously, things like uh, what, cooking and cleaning in the typical 1960s right. household where the dad goes off to work and then he comes home and puts his feet up and his wife brings him his food. And like none of that is anywhere, you know, that's all culturally assigned.
1: Yeah. And it goes back to things we've talked about before about even like thinking about from a political standpoint, conservative and liberal. And there are conservative ideas of gender and liberal mm-hmm. ideas of gender. And it's just a reminder that the Bible is not trying to align with one of those things. So just as today's maybe more progressive culture is going to agree with the Bible on some things with gender and disagree, so is that 1950s, yep. leave it to beaver, kind of. It's going to have some... It's going to get some things right, and it's going to get some things wrong. And it's important to understand that, because culture is always shifting. Right. right. It, it just is. It's always changing. So the, the the that's why it's so important we stay grounded in the Scriptures, and we know what they say, and we know what is Is being communicated so that when culture shifts, we're we're not rising or or lowering uh, on the tide. I do want to get to one more topic that you mentioned in the prep, which is just to I think kind of purity culture, Mm -hmm. and because I think it's another way that maybe male leadership in the church has gotten it wrong. Uh, And you know, I don't want to get maybe into the nitty gritty of all the do's and don'ts, but things like the Billy Graham rule, things like uh, I kiss dating goodbye, like all those things that. In my mind growing up, as a young guy in the Church, I always felt like women were being presented to me as dangerous, and, you know, there was some truth in that in my own life, but that had to do with me <laughs> and how I interacted, and I think there needs to be a correction in the Church to, to even on the conversation about sexual sin and dating and marriage and all of that, that uh, men take ownership of the fact that, you know, James will talk about the sin that begins in my heart... And I give room to let it grow, and I act on it, and that—that's a me problem, not the pretty girl in high school ministry sitting next to me, her problem. Right.
2: Yeah, Uh, Yeah, I remember watching a a Netflix movie. It was a documentary on a woman who was growing up in a uh, in a very, very conservative uh, Muslim country. Yeah. And she was beautiful, and uh, the women around her said, "You're in danger." Yeah. And she ended up getting killed. Because she was beautiful. Because in that culture, they would say that's that's her fault. It's not the sin that's within me, which is Mm -hmm. uh, which is not something we want to do. And any time that we end up putting it on somebody else, uh, that that somebody else is responsible for my own sin, uh, we're making a mistake. Yeah,
3: yeah. And the same. And it is. I just think there is such a fine line in that too. Because even I'm raising two high school daughters right now and and in that as they as they as we navigate things like modesty I mean one of the things I shared with my daughter recently who does have a boyfriend is to say hey a way that you can care really well for him is by just being aware of being modest right. because we know that he's going to experience temptation we know all of us experience temptation and so there are ways in which as a woman you can demonstrate that. And then at the same time, as I shared a little bit earlier, there is, as a female, again, oftentimes we have been put in a place where we feel that we are doing something wrong or have a shame or a guilt associated with our bodies because it is our fault if a man is lusting or something like that. So again, it is it is a tricky one and there is a tension and everyone has to own their own part in that, I think. so.
1: I think that the key is that there's a big difference between your daughter saying, I'm choosing to dress modestly, to honor the Lord, and yep. to not provide you know, a source of temptation, versus the church pushing down on women and saying, watch what you dress, watch where you sit, watch how you act, watch what you do, so that you don't make the men. It's almost like this idea that, hey, God's doing something really important with our men. And your job is just not to screw just that don't up. get in yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah. right and, and and versus saying, hey God's doing something in you' god 's doing something in all of us, and we all have a part to play in participating in that and in safeguarding that and in keeping mm-hmm. and, and in keeping that and I just I just know growing up in the church, I would hear women be told that all the time, yeah. but I was never told as a man, watch how you engage women, watch that you're not too rough, watch that you don't talk down to them, watch that you I was never warned of that ever. And I just think we got to be careful that there's a congruity to saying to young men and young women or older men and older women, hey, live for Jesus. Live for each other. Mutually submit yourselves for the good of the Lord and the good of the church.